Okay, if you have your Bible, turn it to page 2 in your Bible. Genesis chapter 2, page 2. Page 2 in my Bible. Um, God has created all of created order in six days. He's getting ready to rest. He's just created Adam. He's created Eve. Um, Actually, it's page 3. We're going to look at Genesis 2.25. Genesis 1 is the high-level view of creation. Here's what God did on a macroscopic scale. Genesis 2 is more of a low-level view of what God did and how he did it. At the end of that low-level view, in verse 25, we read, The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And that's the man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed. Uh, They were naked, and there was no shame. And the reason why there was no shame is because there was no sin in this world. And so there was no judgment for sin. So they were naked and they were not ashamed. When we know what happens in chapter 3, in the very next verse, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other animals of the field. So the serpent approaches Eve. Adam is right there with her. And he says to them, Did the Lord really say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And asks all of these questions. And he deceives her. Adam and Eve end up eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had forbidden them to eat from. And so they sin They sin right in front of God. Let's go over to verse 7. Just seven verses earlier, they're naked and they're not ashamed. Here we have a sin event happening in the first six verses of chapter 3. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin coverings. So as soon as they had sinned against God, God's judgment comes into effect. You see it right away. They knew they were naked. So the conclusion we can draw from this is that nakedness, when there is sin, is a sign of God's judgment. Then we go on and you see the judgment that's specific for Eve. She'll have pain in childbirth. There's a judgment for Adam. He's going to work by the sweat of his brow to earn a living for the rest of his life. And there's a judgment for the serpent. No more legs for the serpent. Let's fast forward a little bit to the time when the nation of Israel is getting ready to enter into the promised land. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. They've been in the desert for 40 years. Uh, The first batch, the first wave of the first generation of Israelites got the law as they were leaving Egypt. They lived in the desert for 40 years. All of those that rebelled and wanted to do things their own way died off. And now they're on the west side of the Jordan River and they're getting ready to cross over into the promised land and take the conquest. And God gives them the law again. And Deuteronomy 28 is a fascinating chapter, very fascinating, because it's divided in two halves. The first half is verses 1 through 14, where God spells out all of the blessings that will be there for Israel if they obey him. And these are good blessings. They're really good blessings. You're going to enjoy the land. You're going to be prosperous. Nobody will come in and take you. You're going to have a really great time. All you have to do is obey me. So for 14 verses, God goes on and on and on about their blessings. But then things turn in verse 15. If you look at the first word in Deuteronomy 28, 15, you see the word but. And so for the next 55 verses or so, God goes on and he describes what is going to take place when they disobey him. See how verse 15 says, It shall come about if you do not obey the Lord to observe all his things 
with which I charge you, then I will come and overtake you. So God starts to spell out for 50 verses or so the ways in which God will bring judgment upon them if they disobey him. Let's just take a look at a few of them. Let's look at verse 18. Verse 18 said, Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound good. That sounds like judgment. This is judgment language. You're going to be cursed. Verse 22 says, The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew, and they will pursue you until you perish. Again, it sounds like judgment. Verse 32, drop down another 10 verses or so. Your sons and daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. This is another judgment from God. It goes on and on. So let's drop down to verses 47 and 48, and we'll see why all of this is. God says, Because you did not serve Yahweh, your God, with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. And get this, in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness, in the lack of all things. And he'll put an iron yoke on you and so forth. So their nakedness is with everything else, with hunger and thirst and a yoke, <coughs> servitude. Nakedness is right there with it. Nakedness, exposed nakedness, is a sign of God's judgment due to sin. So uh, that's what God was telling Israel as they're getting ready to enter the promised land. Let's jump ahead, go to Ezekiel. Find the middle of your Bible and head right. Head past Isaiah and Jeremiah. Go to Ezekiel chapter 16. This is about a thousand years later, maybe 900 years later. Israel has had a series of prophets. They've had a series of kings. And there's one thing that Israel has demonstrated, and that is that they are unfaithful to God. They are rebellious against God as a whole nation. For sure, there are godly men, there are godly women, there are godly children in Israel during that time. But as a whole, Israel has been unfaithful. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to take a look at verse 15 and 16 of Ezekiel chapter 16 and see exactly what it is that Israel was doing. Again, this is about 900 years after they enter into the the land. Verse 15 says, You trusted in your beauty and you played the harlot because of your fame and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing And he goes on, he says, you took some of your clothes and made for yourself high places of various colors and you played the harlot on them, which you should never come about nor happen. What he's getting out there with the harlot is is there's marriage language and there's unfaithfulness that's taking place and God is telling Israel, I know that you have run after other gods. You have run after the gods of all of the nations that are around you. Um, I am the God and you know I'm the one God and you have been unfaithful. And so what we'll do is we'll take a look at God's response to that. If you drop down to verses 37, 38, and 39, we'll see what God does in response to this. He says, Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. I will gather them against you from every direction, and I will expose your nakedness to them, that they may see all of your nakedness. Thus, I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood or judged. 
I will bring on you the blood of the wrath and jealousy. So this is judgment language. God is judging Israel because of their unfaithfulness to him. And the way that he does that is he places nakedness, their nakedness, in front of their enemies. And there are many other places in the Old Testament that that do this, that show this. This is God's judgment. The reason I bring that up today and the reason I mention that in the disciplines is because we live in a culture where nakedness or the suggestion of nakedness or partial nakedness is valued and it's held in very high esteem and held in very high regard. And it's all around us. It's, it's around us in the way people dress. It's around us online. It's around us everywhere. And when we are sitting down and shepherding our heart in the morning or in the evening, whenever you spend your time with the Lord, it is really good to remember God's purpose in nakedness is judgment. God's purpose in nakedness is judgment. And we have a world that has a, a very different definition and a very different use for nakedness. They use nakedness for something else. They, they see it in a positive and a good light. And God has a judgment for it. And, and his judgment is to show that that is how he condemns sin. So when all of this garbage is around us, we need to be the kind of men who see nakedness and think about nakedness the way God does. He says, this is what I do to show that I am bringing my judgment upon the one who is sinful. So the world around us is actually glorying. They are actually celebrating They are actually delighting in that judgment which will come to them, and they're showing it by the way that they dress or the way that they put themselves online or anything like that. So as men, we need to be the kind of men who turn our faces, turn our backs, turn our eyes from all of those things to see it the way God sees it. I think it's very helpful to understand that um, this is God's form of judgment. And so when we view it in that light, I think that helps us as we contend with what is all around us everywhere, both in real life and online as well. So I hope that's encouraging to you guys. Um, these are good passages. These are passages that God gave to us. And he preserved for us because he knew what the world would be like around us. And he wants us to have a biblical perspective on what the world calls good. So let's be men who think rightly about that. Let's be men who think biblically about that. When that's in front of us in whatever place, so we need to see it the way God sees it. So I just want to encourage you guys to make that part of your prayer life. Lord, will you make me aware to a deeper degree what this is and uh, help me know this and help me love what you have said is good. Okay, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, would you just turn in them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So we're going to be looking at chapter 1 and the first 12 verses of chapter 2 as we go about our, our message today. And Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, and we'll do a little bit of a history here for us, just to give us a picture of what is happening. Paul comes across these people in his second missionary journey. He starts his second missionary journey in present-day Turkey, and he was visiting the churches that he established on his first missionary journey, and he was strengthening them. After he was done doing that, he moved across the Aegean Sea into what is present-day Greece, and he starts up in the north in Philippi, and he makes his way down. When he was in Philippi, he, um, there were the first converts to Christianity under Paul's ministry there in Philippi. And it didn't take long for the opposition to arise. And so in Acts chapter 17, um, Paul is persecuted in Philippi and he shows up in Thessalonica. And this is pretty interesting. He spends three Sabbaths teaching and preaching in Thessalonica, and a church is born. So he spends less than a month there. 
Um, and a church is born. There are true converts. There's a, a nucleus of believers that are there. And these are young believers. And most of these are not Jews. Most of these are Gentiles, but there are some Jews. And um, so it's mostly a Gentile church. And just as they're getting going, just like up in Philippi, as soon as the gospel takes root, persecution shows up. And uh, there's a hostile crowd, and that crowd becomes begins making false claims of, against Paul, and they make threats on his life. So Paul leaves, and he heads south further, and he goes to Berea. And uh, from there, he goes to Corinth, and he goes to Athens. And um, that's where it all starts. So this is a young church. This is a church that Paul... Uh, started. This is a group of people who are very young in their faith. Um, while Paul was down in Athens and in Corinth, he wanted to know how they were doing in all of this persecution. So he sent Timothy back to them uh, to find out how they're doing. And then Timothy came back with a really good report saying they were doing well. And so his writing of First Thessalonians is a letter to them uh, to encourage them and to teach them. And so that's what the setting is on this. And as we, we read this letter, we will see that Paul has... 11 principles for us that relate to gospel ministry. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through them one at a time, and hopefully there'll be something in each one of those that will help us understand what gospel ministry should look like in our lives. So the first thing that Paul does is we're going to read verses 4 and 5. Uh, we'll start actually in verse 2 of chapter 1, and we will see that gospel ministry reveals God's electing love. Starting in verse 2, Paul writes to them and he says, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. So he starts by expressing a great deal of thanks for them. And he has thanks in three different ways. In verse 2, he has thanks because he's making mention of them in his prayers. So it's in his prayers that he's thankful for them. And in verse 3, you see what he's thankful for. He's thankful for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. But in verse 4, what you see is the, the reason or the grounds for his thanksgiving. Knowing, beloved of God, his choice of you. That's what we want to focus on. Paul knows his choice of them. He knows God's choice of them, that God has chosen them. So what we want to do is we want to ask ourselves how it is that Paul knows that God has chosen them. And the answer is right there for us in verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul knows God's choice of them because of how the gospel came to them. The gospel came to them in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. When we read those words, we think that those words might be describing the gospel itself, that the gospel has power, that the gospel brings conviction. And those things are certainly true, but that's not what's being taught here. What's being taught here is that it's the men who brought the gospel that actually had the power, they were in the spirit, and they were full of conviction. And we see that um, at the end of verse 5, when Paul says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. The we there is Paul and his traveling companions. And they are the ones who are in power and in the spirit and full of conviction. 
because the gospel was spoken by this kind of man, by these kinds of men, Paul was able to know of God's choice of them. So our takeaway here is that God is pleased to use empowered men who are filled with the Holy Spirit and who are fully convinced of the power of the gospel to reveal where his elective light and his elective love is at work. So what God does is he uses men who are capable of speaking the gospel, who are full of the Spirit, and he uses them speaking that gospel message to reveal where his elective love is at work. So what you see here is we have two really beautiful things. You have God's sovereignty and salvation. You see that with his choice. And you have man's responsibility to preach the gospel. You have the empowered man who's spirit-filled and full of the conviction of the power of the gospel. So the first thing that we know that gospel ministry looks like is that gospel ministry is a ministry that reveals God's electing love. That's the first thing. I'm going to take a drink here because my voice is having a hard time. Probably having a hard time hearing me. So that's the first thing. Whenever you see gospel ministry that's being preached by men who are full of the Spirit, that reveals where God's electing love is at work. The people that God has already chosen are going to respond to that message. The second thing that we see about gospel ministry and Paul's relationship with the church in Thessalonica is that gospel ministry results in fearless, joyful, exemplary imitators. Paul and his traveling companions were already believers. These people came to Christ and they imitated them. We see that starting in verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia and Achaia is basically all of what we know today as Greece. As you look at the map of that part of the world, it's the part that's to the left of Turkey and all of that. And the Thessalonian believers were an example to all of them. So let's look at how they were imitators of Paul. They were imitators of Paul in verse 6 because they received the word in much tribulation, the joy of the Holy Spirit. There was tribulation when they received the the gospel because Jews there stirred up a crowd and wanted to put an end to Paul's ministry and they were very hostile to the gospel. They were imitators of Paul in that they were faithful and they were true to the gospel just the same way that Paul was in his truthful and his faithfulness to the gospel in all of his missionary journeys. The gospel message is an offensive message to the person who doesn't believe. We all know that because the gospel message says submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, that nobody can see. Why would you ever submit yourself to someone you can't even see? Um, it's a foolish message. It's a message of foolishness. And because the unbeliever sees the message as foolish, they're willing to go to any length to hinder the advancement of that message because they think it's a foolish message. But the Christian is full of joy, even when that hardship comes. And the reason why they're full of joy is because the difficulties and the trials that, that await the believer, they don't compare to the joy of knowing that you have a right relationship with God, that you've been released from the penalty of your sin, that you have an eternity with God in heaven, free from the penalty of your sin. So what does gospel ministry look like? The second thing that it looks like is joyful saints 
imitating the faith of those who preach the gospel to them. Okay. So you know you have gospel ministry when those that do come to Christ begin to imitate the joy that you have in Christ. They don't blindly believe something. They, they understand what it is they've been released from. They understand where it is that they're going. Third thing that was characteristic of Paul's ministry, especially to the church in Thessalonica, was that his gospel ministry is multiplied quickly by new believers. And we see that in verse 8. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So we have no need to say anything. Just a couple of notes here. Uh, Notice two things about their message. Their message went to every place, which means it probably wasn't a serial progression where it goes to one place and then another place and another place. It's probably going to multiple places at the same time. So that's where you understand the idea of a gospel ministry multiplying out in various directions at the same time. But also, notice that the message was so clear that Paul had no reason to say anything. It silenced Paul. You see that at the end of verse 8. Your faith has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. They were so clear. The gospel was so plainly stated, so simply stated, but so comprehensively stated, that Paul didn't need to add anything to it. And this is Paul, the greatest theologian and the greatest missionary that ever existed, there's these baby Christians who've been believers for probably just a few months and they're they're sending missionaries out and they themselves are missionaries going out and, and they don't need to be, their message doesn't need to be appended by the missionary Paul because it's so clear and so simple. So what does gospel ministry look like? It looks like multiplication of saints in places where the gospel has not yet gone forth. And we hope that happens in PNG. We hope that one day... The cans and uh, whoever else is there with them will be able to speak a gospel message that people will believe, and the gospel message will proceed out from the village of Malororo into other places. Kyle, you might touch on just the kind of balance between obviously wanting to be quick to like sin and to run with the gospel, but also being kind of like slow and qualified and here and here. Yeah, how do you balance that? For sure. The question is. Um, How do you balance the issue here of they were immediately going forward with a gospel, but you also need to send qualified people the gospel. And what you see here is that they were qualified. Paul actually taught them well enough that they were qualified. The reason why we see that is at the end of verse 8, because Paul didn't need to correct it or add anything else to it. So Paul made sure that they understood the essentials of the gospel. They may not have understood the full context of the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are mostly Gentiles. But they understood salvation. Um, They understood the gospel message that needed to be preached to the extent that Paul didn't have to add anything to it. So they probably were trained pretty well. Uh, They had the missionary Paul right there for a month, and Paul was among them. and, And it's obvious that God's favor was on them. They were probably growing more in their first month than I grew in my first month in my walk with the Lord. Um, Because they were equipped and they were ready to go out. And no doubt they were were in a mixed condition, just like the rest of us are. And and no doubt there there was misspeaking and there was other things. But they had a clear message. They knew the message. And in all told, the gospel was in good hands with them. So, yeah, they did get trained. Yeah, that's something that's very important, is that um, when you send out someone, um, you are endorsing their message. So they need to have a very good grasp on that message. 
And uh, that is why we've gone to significant lengths before the people were sent out to PNG. Uh, we sent the team to Papua New Guinea in November of 14, and we had been training them probably for two years before that with some practicals of how do you live in a jungle, but mostly with theologicals of what is true about the gospel. And so all of that. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing is that gospel ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. And we see that in the first half of verse 9. So Paul talks in verse 8, talking about how the gospel has gone out to every place. And so the they that he refers to in verse 9 is the people in those places, in those every places. They themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols. So what that's telling us here is that when the missionaries from Thessalonica went to places, those missionaries told those others how it was that they received Paul when Paul got to them in Thessalonica. And so their testimony was about two things. It was the manner in which Paul was received when he got the message to them and he brought the message to them and how they repented from their sin. You see that at the end of or the middle of the verse and how you turn from God to idols. So what we see here is that the gospel ministry is one that proclaims the truth, but it also is not satisfied just with the proclamation of the truth. If someone says they believe um, that gospel message is accompanied by a turning from idols. It's accompanied by repentance. So what does gospel ministry look like? The next thing that it looks like is saints who labor hard for biblical repentance. Uh, you haven't preached the gospel message if someone says, I believe that, but there's no fruit of it in their life. Uh, they haven't embraced the gospel message. You may have preached it, I guess, but they haven't embraced it. And so the, the gospel minister labors for repentance when a person says they believe Next characteristic of Paul's gospel ministry is found in the rest of verse 9 and in verse 10, and that's that gospel ministry results in a desire for God above all else. And this is very, very important because um, as we were talking in our discussion group, uh, one of the things that characterized Israel in the Old Testament was they were more than happy to worship God and obey his laws so long as they could do that with all of their other idols and their other gods right next to them. Throughout Israel's history, they were very syncretistic. They had a belief in others' gods that they held alongside God. But what Paul sees here is the desire in the, in the Thessalonians to hold God above all other things. So they repented from their sins, and at the end of verse 9, to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescued us from the wrath to come. Notice two characteristics about their repentance here. Two very important characteristics. The first is that they're serving a living and true God. They're no longer serving their own desires. They're submitting their desires to God. And that's going to be happening in greater and greater numbers of areas of their life. There's an immediate turning, but it grows in the areas in their life in which they're serving God. That's the first thing. And the second thing, and I think this is really, really indicative of you've got a good gospel ministry, is people are waiting for the return of Jesus. And what that tells you is they understand exactly who Jesus is. They understand that Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's going to come and rule and reign on this earth. 
It's very important that they understand Jesus is the Messiah. And so these people demonstrate that they do understand who Christ is because they're actually waiting for his return. They're waiting for the day that Jesus will come and will inhabit this earth and he will rule and reign on this earth in justice and peace and righteousness and truth. And Paul actually instructs them more on that at the end of chapter 4 when he talks about the return of Christ and in the beginning of chapter 5 when he talks about the day of the Lord. But here we see that they result... This ministry results in a desire for God above all other things. So here's where we need to stop and ask ourselves a question. And that is, do we, are we the kind of men who are growing in our ability to turn away from every other thing and to wait eagerly for Christ? Do we think on a regular basis about the age that is to come? We're going to have bodies. We're going to have the same soul. We're going to have the same spirit within us. The difference is, is that we'll be living in a world that's not beset with sin. Um, everything will be right and Jesus will rule and reign. Um, my profession will go away because there won't be a need for security. Because Jesus will be ruling and reigning. And it is good for the believer to long for that day when everything will be right. Because the believer will rule alongside Jesus in that day. And that's something that the believers in Thessalonica were doing well. So now we're going to move on to chapter 2. And uh, we see that the next characteristic of gospel ministry is that it does not lose courage in the face of opposition. It doesn't lose courage in in the face of opposition. Verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Paul's life was at risk in Thessalonica. His life was at risk earlier than that up in Philippi, but it didn't hinder him from anything. Um, We want to understand that the fact that Paul was facing opposition in his gospel ministry didn't mean that something is wrong. didn't mean that something was broken. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, you will be hated by all because of my name. That's because there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who love themselves and there are those who love God. And those that love God are a threat to those who love themselves. So the only response that one who loves themselves can make to the one who loves God that satisfies them is to bring opposition to them and to bring difficulty to them. And we see that throughout Paul's ministry. We don't live in an age where that, to this point, has been such an issue in our country, in our culture, But that day is coming. Uh, That day is coming quickly. Um, The last election in November probably stayed that for some period of time. But to be rest assured, there are groups, there are movements that are strategizing and formulating very seriously and very hard about how to continue the advancement that is directly in opposition to the gospel. And Paul had no problem with that. He moves right down to Thessalonica from Philippi. And he he had preached and taught in Philippi, and he just moved on. He understood that that was a natural part of life. So he wasn't deterred in the face of opposition. So that's the sixth thing that characterized gospel ministry. The seventh is that it has to flow from truth and pure motives. And we see that in verse 3. Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. The word error here relates to a wrong position in biblical matters. 
So a gospel ministry is something that understands biblical truth and proclaims biblical truth. The actual content of the gospel is accurate and true. And Paul did that. So his ministry did not come from error or impurity. And the idea of impurity there, it relates to a motive that is not right or is not true. Uh, anything that's sinful. And the idea of deceit there is trickery. It relates to trickery. Uh, to deceive somebody with an upfront message, kind of a bait and switch, uh, presenting the gospel as one thing and then coming in later and saying it's something else. Um, what Paul knew, as well as anybody else, that the gospel message itself was attractive to the person in whom the Lord was already working. And so there's no need to doctor it, there's no need to pollute it, there's no need to distort it. Just speak it for what it is and it will be attractive to the one that God is already working in. So we need to remember that um, the confidence that we have must be in the gospel itself, not in our mechanisms and our window dressing that goes around the gospel. Um, So we want to keep that in front of us. And that's hard, too, because we're thinking, well, the gospel message is really offensive to people. And it is offensive. It's offensive to the unbeliever, but it's not offensive to the one in whom God is already working. Next, the gospel message concerns itself with God's approval alone. And we see that in verses 4 through 6. So just as um, we see in the previous verse that they were running after truth, they weren't dissuaded by a false message, we see that these kinds of people are concerned with God's approval and not man's. Paul says in verse 4, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, and God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Paul makes several statements here, starting in verse 4. He says that they've been approved by God. At the end of verse 4, he talks about being pleasing to God who examines his heart. In verse 5, he talks about how God is a witness of them. God is examining Paul. God has been testing Paul, and God has been examining Paul for a very long time. And we see that God has been satisfied with Paul as we look at what he says. He says that they never came with flattering speech or with a pretext for greed or anything else. God has examined them, and he has found them to be men who are not interested in in the approval of other men because of the content of what they spoke. So when you look at this, what you see is that God had tested Paul in various places early in Paul's seasons of ministry so that he could be trusted and he could be given this gospel ministry in Thessalonica. So whenever you're in gospel ministry, the reason why you're there, if it's a biblical ministry, is because whatever you've been doing in previous seasons of your life, you've been faithful with the gospel. Whether it's in your own heart or your own household or whatever there is, if you move into any kind of ministry and it's any kind of gospel biblical ministry, it's because you've been faithful in the things that are before you. And so the principle there is labor in ministry with a desire to please God, not with a desire to please man. And this is really, really hard because you want people to think well of you. You want to show up whether you're the new guy or you, the guy who's been there for 10 years, and you want people to think well of you. But your greatest concern should be what God thinks of you and how you handle the message and the kind of man you are. 
when you handle the message. So gospel ministry looks like saints who are concerned only with God's approval. And if you're concerned with God's approval, it will be winsome to the believer and the one in whom God is working. Because the gospel message itself is winsome to that person. Here's one that's very, very important in verse 7. Gospel ministry is, is characterized by a person and a minister who knows how to be gentle. Gentle. And before we talk about and we go into the verse, I want to help you understand. Uh, it's important to say a few words about what gentleness is. Gentleness is not the doormat that is lying in front of the door. Gentleness is a confidence in God and what he is committed to already do. It's not a confidence in yourself and your own strength. It's a confidence in God. So Paul says, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And so at different points in his gospel ministry, Paul had to do very different things. There was a point early in his gospel ministry where he had to admonish Peter. There was a point in his gospel ministry where he had to rebuke believers in the church in Corinth. There was a point in his gospel ministry where he had to exhort and encourage the faint-hearted. He had to encourage this group of people here in Thessalonica because they were persecuted by the Jews. And so it takes a gentle man to be able to ascertain what kind of situation a person is in and what kind of help they need. If a man is not relying upon God's strength to be working in people, if he's relying on his own, he's going to be less discerning in his ability to assess what is happening in front of him. And so he's going to be less wise and less ready to apply the right and help in the right time for those people. So the gospel is characterized, a good gospel ministry is characterized by people who know how to be gentle. It doesn't just mean they're soft people. It means that they're very good at observing the true situation that people are involved in, and they are good at applying the right kind of need and the right kind of help in that need. And Paul was that kind of man. As you look at Paul's letters, his letters were full of rebukes. You don't have to read very far into 1 Corinthians to see Paul just laying it on them heavy and hard. But he's also a very encouraging man. He's a very encouraging man to this church in Thessalonica because he knows they're young believers. They only had a month with him. And he trained them well, but they only had him for a month. And so he's very, very careful and gentle with them. But when he writes to the church in Corinth, he stayed with the church in Corinth for 18 months. He stayed with them for 18 times as long. So he could be more discerning with them as to what kind of people they were because he actually knew them much, much better. So that's why when you read a longer letter like 1 Corinthians, um, for one, the letter is longer. And for another, he actually knows those people much, much better because he spent years with them. And so it takes a gentle man to do that. The tenth thing, the second to the last thing, is that um, biblical gospel ministry balances two things. It balances the gospel proclamation on one side, and it, ma- and it balances gospel love on the other. And we see that in verses 8 and 9. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. And he goes on to describe that in verse 9. So you see that they're, they're more than happy. Paul is very eager. He's very intent. He's very diligent about pursuing the gospel and declaring the gospel. We see that. We impart to you not only the gospel, and Paul imparted a true gospel, a strong gospel, one that was able to marshal all of these young believers and send them out. That was a good gospel that he imparted to them. 
but he also imparted his own life to them. And we can see how he did that in verse 9. He says, You recall our labor and how our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim the gospel of God. Paul didn't show up and say, Take care of me. I'm here to proclaim the gospel to you. He showed up and he was working alongside of them as a tent maker so that he would not be a burden to them, so that he would be well positioned to declare the gospel to them, so they would see the kind of man that he was, that he loved them by not imposing his needs upon them. And so gospel ministry in these ways is a gospel ministry that's characterized by saints balancing on one hand a clear gospel presentation with a self-giving gospel-based love for the people that you're with. So, so in regards to verse 9, so he's a full-time tent maker and a minister, minister of the Word of God? Yeah, he was doing what he needed to do to support himself. When he said, I work night and day as a tent maker or as a minister? Or verse 9? Verse 9. I think what he's saying there is that he was busy all the time. Uh, he was busy all the time so as not to be a burden to them. He did whatever he needed to do um, to take care of himself and provide for himself. Um, there's a couple of things we need to say about that. One is Paul was single. He wasn't bringing a family with him. He didn't take a wife and two young kids to Mauro to Papua New Guinea, or three young kids or four young kids. He was a single guy. And so it's a little easier to provide for yourself. Um, the second thing is he didn't come from a very strong, wealthy sending base. He basically took what he had and kind of went with it. Um, our missionaries in Papua New Guinea are not a burden to the villagers that they're with because they have a church behind them. They have several sending churches behind them. Um, but they went with the idea that we're not going to be a burden on the people who are there. And there's a variety of ways you can do that. You can do that by working when you're there. We said, no, we don't want to endorse that. We want to send you so that you can use all of your working hours, your waking hours, to learn the language and to preach the gospel. But in either way, they weren't a burden to the people that are already there. And that's important, because in many cultures in the world, um, they're wondering why the Americans are there. Are you there to use us? Are you there to abuse us? Um, It's very difficult in a country like Japan, because in Japan they have... a worldview that says this, um, if you're not working, um, we have a very high view of work. And if you're not working, that means we have a low view of you. So whatever you say, we have a low view of. That's why it's very difficult for missionaries in Japan, because in Japan, the missionary, he doesn't have a job. His job is proclaiming the gospel. And that doesn't ring very well with men in Japan. Their worldview says you've got to be working and all of this. And so traditionally, it's very difficult for the gospel to make a lot of progress in a place like Japan uh, for those reasons. But Paul did not want to be a burden to those he was with, so he did whatever he needed to do. He probably went without a lot of sleep uh, so that he could be a blessing to them. And the last thing we see in verses 10 through 12 is that it requires excellent behavior from everybody. And we'll see that it requires excellent behavior from the one who brings the gospel And it requires excellent behavior from the ones who say they embrace the gospel. Starting in verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. 
So we see the first half of that. They didn't just come with a really good, clear, sound gospel message. They came as men who actually lived that message. They lived that out, and, and the Thessalonians were actually observing that. They were witnesses of that. They could agree with Paul that, yes, we saw you, and you actually were upright. You were blameless. You were well-behaved in, in your dealings with us. So their own life was a good picture of the gospel message that they were speaking. Just as you know, in verse 11, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Why? In verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This clear gospel message that is being preached is not one that just talks about salvation through Jesus Christ and the atoning work of Christ on the cross. It's a gospel message that speaks of the lordship of Jesus Christ for the one who embraces salvation through faith in Christ. And the lordship of Jesus Christ is demonstrated by a person who does what is Paul is saying in verse 12. You walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And the way that those Thessalonians knew what it meant to walk in a manner worthy was to look at Paul's life and look at the life of those who came with him and observe their blameless, upright behavior. Paul could honestly say to them, follow me as I follow Christ. So the last characteristic of a true biblical gospel ministry is that there are saints who require excellent behavior from all who believe, starting with themselves. So I hope that this is kind of a fire hose, but I hope it's an encouragement to you as you think about your interactions with the unbelieving around you, whether they're little kids in your own house or students who sit next to you in class or guys you work side by side with. There's things that are true here for us that need to be true about us. Um, there's things that are true about God. And I pray that those are an encouragement to you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Lord, I do thank you that you show us what gospel ministry looks like. Lord, I thank you that you're very clear. and There's nothing wrong with what you've said. I pray for my friends and I pray for myself that we would want to be the kind of men, increasingly, who are characterized by a good, clear gospel ministry. Lord, whether it's conversations in our own home, conversations with our wives or our kids or our parents, Lord, conversations with those we work with, Lord, may the kind of words we use and the kind of things that are important to us be a testimony of you. So I do pray for my friends. I pray for them this weekend that they would enjoy their weekend pray for the guys who have to work this weekend, Lord, that they would work by your grace. Lord, I pray for us that we would come back here tomorrow ready to worship you and give you the praise that you are so deserving of. And I pray in Jesus' name.